Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, is out with a beautifully crafted opinion today. It begins with a quotation of Frank Sinatra's <laughs> My Way, and it continues it on. Hurts. And essentially, it says that the president barely seems to notice that the fissures he's opened are now swallowing him. Even Mitch McConnell, happy to see the president impeached. Tim, thanks for joining. You could go so far as to say, especially Mitch McConnell is happy to see the president impeached, because now he gets to get rid of President Trump and all the bad things that are associated with him. But a lot of the work that he wanted to see done got done during this last four years. Well, Vani, the first thing I want to say is that I'm well aware of your own prodigious musical talent. Thank you. So I'm, I'm grateful that you gave a hat tip to Frank Sinatra um, in this one. And, you know, on McConnell, I think this is a very interesting moment because they did get a lot of uh, practical conservative policy out of Trump that they that um, uh, Republicans wanted uh, a tax cut, deregulation, and a more conservative court. I think the question that's always hung over that process is: was getting those things worth all of the other trade-offs, the debased public dialogue, uh, uh, breaching the rule of law, and on and on and on, culminating in in an insurrection at the Capitol last week? And and I think. You know, it's certainly a safe time for McConnell to say he's rethinking those things because he already got them. Trump's in his twilight days as president. Uh, Nonetheless, I think what you're seeing is this existential debate within the Republican Party about what does the party want to be and how should it represent conservatism? And should it be classic, um, you know, uh, uh, fiscal uh, uh, hawkishness, foreign policy hawkishness? Um, or be a more of a cultural um, uh, moment that involves a lot of cultural division. And, and the party's really split between its far right and what I would call the McConnell wing. And I think McConnell is now saying, I want it to be otherwise. And if that comes at the expense of Donald Trump's future, so be it. So, Tim, that's a real question. I think, uh, as you mentioned, for a, a lot of Republicans, 74 million uh, people voted for Trump, presumably a sizable portion of those 74 million people were represented by the people that did in fact march on the Capitol uh, last week. Is that a wing of the party that is just lost to the, I guess, the core Republican Party? Or is that now the core Republican Party? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, I think when we when we talk about huge blocks of voters wanting acts who are Republican or who are Democrat, if you go back to every um, uh presidential election through the 1920s, most of them, except for one of Roosevelt's elections, maybe two, and Ronald Reagan in 1984, most of them were decided by very narrow margins. It was rare to have the country tilt overwhelmingly Republican or overwhelmingly Democrat. This last one um, uh, was relatively narrow, but that's, that's not out of keeping with where we've been. And I think the reality is that most Republicans and most Democrats vote by default. And I think we get into a very dangerous area when we start to say, do, do extreme members of the Republican Party actually represent the party itself? And does that mean the party has to accommodate them permanently? And, and, and I would say, and, and I think that, again, that's what 
I think that the, the party is trying to get its arms around. You know, they let essentially with Trump the monster out of the cave. The monster turned around and ate the children. And now they've got to figure out what to do. And, and I think the impeachment is part of that. I think where Mitch McConnell and, and over, I think, uh, at least two dozen Republicans who are going to vote for impeachment are, they're saying, no, it's time for a change. Well, and in fact, Joshua Green did a great thing, and he went back through the voting records of those that were identified storming the Capitol Hill uh, the other day, as many as he could find, as many as he could get access to, and found that those who stormed the Capitol have very erratic voting records, and some of them, you know, are, are not even registered Republican. So, Tim, what happens to the likes of Josh Hawley, the likes of Ted Cruz? Well... You know, that's to be seen. I think uh, it's it's very hard to find ways to punish senators outside of the voting booth. And and um, I think McConnell is is going to flex his muscles around here. That might involve stripping them of committee assignments. Um, Their hometown newspapers have called on them to resign. Ron Johnson's as well. uh, I think that the, the dispiriting and damaging thing about Cruz and Hawley in particular is they're both trained lawyers. Hawley went to Yale. Cruz went to Harvard. Hawley was the attorney general of Missouri. These are men who have been trained to respect the law and the rule of law, and they were out fomenting an insurrection. Um, uh, it, you know, it remains to be seen what happens to them, but I suspect at least until they're up for re-election again, they may just skate along. Tim, I'm so glad we're chatting with you today because not just about the impeachment, but another piece of news that I know you're going to have an interesting take on, New York City pulling contracts with the Trump Organization for, you know, the ice rinks and the golf courses. What do you think the reaction is by the president and and by the Trump Organization here? Because these are near and dear to their hearts, I would think. That's a great question, Paul. It's not only near and dear to their hearts because it's in New York, it's also real money. Yep. And and real money is near and dear to his heart. He uh, those properties in New York generate about seventeen million dollars a year in revenue. I suspect that's around five percent or so of the Trump Organization's pre-pandemic revenue. Uh, but a lot of the you know the meat in the Trump Organization's revenue stream came from um, urban, commercial, and residential real estate. That's all been very stressed. Uh, whereas those city payments are steady cash flow, they can rely on them. And Trump is certainly in the short term possibly squeezed for funds because he has um, over a billion dollars in debt uh, on a portfolio that's worth in the neighborhood of 2.7 to $3 billion pre-pandemic. But he's got $400 billion coming due relatively soon. So he's going to need cash. So not having access to cash in these New York properties is a problem uh, monetar- financially, but it's also, you know, it's a problem um, almost spiritually and emblematically because Donald Trump, for as much as he disparages New York, prides himself on being a New Yorker. And this is yet another rejection of him by New York. Tim, we're really out of time, but you say at the end that as he self-immolates, you know, he will move forward with few regrets, but with plenty of plans for payback. How do you envision that? Uh, To quote Joe Kennedy, uh, don't get mad, get even. I think Donald (laughs) Trump lives by that mantra. 
Hey, Tim, thanks so much uh, for joining us. It's going to be interesting to see uh, the post-White House uh, time for uh, President Trump. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from lovely Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, we appreciate him taking the time. And, Vani, it will be very interesting, not only the next uh, uh, you know, several days as it relates to the impeachment, but also, again, how uh, President Trump, um, you know, what his post-administration, uh, post uh, official office time will look like. Where will he be? What will he do? I think he'd modify that phrase slightly to get mad and get even. Yeah, that's right. We'll see. We'll certainly follow up on that. This is Bloomberg. Well, a lot of investors last week, as they looked on in horror at the insurrection that took place at the Capitol on Wednesday, were pleasantly surprised, shocked. I'm not sure which way to really call it about how the market could trade up in the face of such uncertainty uh, in Washington, D.C. Our next guest, I know, received lots of phone calls from her clients asking the same. Let's check in with Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. They have $1.35 trillion assets under management. Christina, thanks so much for joining us again. You know, at this time of year, we would typically just say, hey, we'd love to get your year-ahead view. And while we certainly want to get that, we want to get that in the context of what happened last week? Did you have to change your outlook at all based upon what we saw in Washington last week? No, we didn't because markets looked through what happened. I mean, it was really amazing that stocks barely flinched because they're looking ahead to a lot more certainty than we had at any time during 2020 up until really the end of the year. And that is that we are going to have broad distribution of effective vaccines, and that is going to be a game changer for the economy in 2021. Also, of course, the market doesn't want this to to stop. The market wants this to keep going. And there are enough things underpinning it from, you know, Fed moves to, as you say, the Biden administration potentially helping the market. But at some point, a Democratic administration is not so good for stocks. Right, Christina? When do we see that? Well, that's when we start hearing the Biden administration talking about raising taxes and seeing that there's enough support in the House and in particular the Senate. Keep in mind that we did, of course, see last week a de facto majority for Democrats in the Senate, but it is razor thin. And that suggests that it is unlikely that any kind of very significant tax hikes would get passed. Um, Maybe we could see some small increases, particularly in the corporate tax, but we're not going back to pre-Trump levels in terms of taxes. So, Christina, how about from the regulatory perspective? Some are concerned that under a Democratic administration and one that has, albeit a razor-thin margin in both the House and the Senate, that regulatory risk is something that investors may have to deal with uh, more going forward. How do you view that? Well, definitely regulatory risk uh, is an issue for investors. There's no two ways about it. Um, But it's all about um, what is the more important factors driving stocks higher. And right now, the potential for more fiscal stimulus, uh, including the potential for a pretty significant infrastructure package, uh, outweighs uh, the regulatory risk. How many people in the service sector can we put to work in construction, Christina? And, and I'm not being funny. I, I, I'm, I suppose I'm trying to say we can have all the construction and all the infrastructure projects in the world, but we still need the service sector to be able to get back to work. When do you see that happening? I think once we have that broad distribution of the vaccine, 
keep in mind that this is such a different crisis than the global financial crisis. That recovery was anemic and uh, was, for much of its time, a jobless recovery. I believe strongly that this is going to be a very different kind of recovery, that it is going to be more robust and more inclusive, so that when we do have that broad distribution of vaccines, we're likely to see the service sector bounce back very, very strongly. But, but, but I just want to push you on that, because what about small business? I mean, a lot of service sector employees are employed by small restaurants and by, you know, bars and other, you know, cafeterias and things like that. Will they just be able to open doors again? Surely all their capital is gone. Well, certainly some have fallen victim. But having said that, we do reduce the odds um, and we do reduce the level of economic scarring by offering more fiscal stimulus now. Damage was certainly done because we went for months without any additional fiscal stimulus. But we did get a relatively small package at the end of the year, and we're likely to get more. So um, I I, I do believe that, that, yes, there has been damage done to the services sector, but there are some restaurants and bars that will be able to reopen, and there will be new ones coming. Uh, And so I do expect a very significant bounce back in services. Christina, on the equity side, you know, how are you thinking about um, this rotation trade that's been working so well uh, in the markets over the last uh, four or five months? Um, folks kind of getting into the more cyclical names, uh, maybe some small cat names, anticipating kind of what I think you're looking for, which is a, a strong rebound in the economy beginning, you know, maybe the second, third quarter of this year. How do you think about that rotation trade? I think that continues. I mean, we certainly have to expect that there are going to be difficult days in the first quarter, that we are going to get really negative news flow. Uh, we're going to see statistics around the virus that are very, very concerning. Um, but uh, I do believe that uh, the stock market will look through that and look to that more robust uh, economic recovery. So I think that the the rotation remains, but that doesn't mean we want to abandon all of the, the more secular growth defensive names. I do believe tech has legs, uh, even as we see that strong rotation continue towards cyclicals and small caps. What concerns you, Christina? Right now, it doesn't seem like there's that much out there that does. Well, certainly there are risks as we head into 2021. I think the first risk is around the virus and combating that. Um, We've already seen variants of COVID-19, including one where it's questionable, the South African variant, questionable whether or not current vaccines can protect against it. If we find that the current vaccines are unable to protect against it, that is a real, real problem. Um, I think that's a low probability event, but it is a very significant risk. The other big risk, which is also, I think, lower probability, is that we see monetary accommodation pull away too quickly. And I think certainly what we've heard from uh, recently from Fed officials suggests that's not going to happen. But those are two very significant risks. So how do you expect the Fed? Do you expect the Fed to continue with that messaging uh, of moderate rates for the foreseeable future? I do. I don't think the Fed will make the mistake of starting to talk about withdrawing accommodation, even if we do get more fiscal stimulus, even if we do see signs of inflation, which have yet to really show. 
All right, Christina, thank you very much. That is Christina Hooper of Invesco. Always absolutely thrilled to have your thoughts. And of course, uh, the market just continues on a pace. We are hearing from Reuters, I do want to mention, Paul, an aide yeah, to Reuters big. saying that the Senate GOP is thinking about starting an impeachment trial Friday. That is two days from now. Yeah, that's the big news. The real question is timing for the Senate. We may be getting a little bit of nod here. Yeah, exactly. Much, much sooner than we anticipated. Obviously, a lot of today's market action will be led by Intel, which is the best performer in the S&P 500. But there are other stocks higher too, Dave Wilson, including some of the pharmaceuticals like Eli Lilly and Regeneron. Yeah, with, with all the developments on the COVID-19 front and other types of drugs where you've really seen uh, drug makers benefit, and General Motors is another example. And remember, those shares uh, hit a record yesterday uh, since the company returned to the public markets in 2010. All this uh, coming with enthusiasm for GM's electric vehicles. Uh, clearly, Intel is sort of the class of the field, you might say, in today's trading. You know, it's funny. I was thinking back to yesterday. We were talking about Las Vegas Sands and the mm-hmm. death of their founder, Shel- Sheldon Adelson, and you know what might happen because of that. And you didn't really see the stock move in response. Today, it's a much more obvious example. You've got CEO Bob Swan leaving the chip maker after just two years of running the company and on the heels of a push by activist investor Dan Loeb for some kind of change. Possible breakup, asset sale, other strategic options. So you've got a sort of a cause and effect, uh, arguably, uh, that people are seeing in that move and, you know, the potential for things to happen down the line. And by the way, we should point out it's not just Intel moving because, uh, you know, the chip maker is bringing in uh, VMware's head, Pat Gelsinger, to take over from Swan. And VMware shares are down 5.3% mm. as we speak. So, you know, it's being seen as a loss for VMware and a win for Intel, this management change. Let's bring in Anurag Rana, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering the tech space for decades. Anurag, thanks so much for joining us here. What does it mean for a tech giant like Intel to bring in uh, someone like Pat Gelsinger from VMware? What's it mean for Intel? So I think it's going to be a very interesting move, largely because Pat's one of the strongest CEOs in the software world. You know, in our opinion, right after, you know, Microsoft CEO, I would rank Pat as the number two mm. in the software land. And frankly, you know, the whole world is moving towards more software-defined uh, work, uh, no matter where it is. And Intel really needs some kind of a push behind them to, you know, get their act together. So, so I think it's a very sharp move for Intel and obviously a big loss for VMware. Who will VMware find to take over? Oh, it, they've already announced their CFO as the interim CEO. Um, there are a few candidates. There is one particular candidate internally that I, am, I, I really admire. He's their chief operating officer for customer operations called Sanjay Poonan. Um, I think he could be one person uh, that, that could take over the, rel, uh, the, the helm. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a software company with a number of assets. Uh, um, it could be somebody from outside. But, you know, my, my money would be on Sanjay. Does this signify, Anurag, a a push or a bigger push by Intel into the cloud? Do they feel like they have really lagged behind some of their technology peers? I I think, Paul, it's more than that. It's just a matter of execution. It's a matter of getting their manufacturing problem fixed, getting their roadmap uh, 
fixed. Uh, and, you know, if I go back and think about VMware just about four or five years ago, you know, it was in a similar spot that it was always thought of as a company with only on-premise products and uh, not doing well. And then Pat, with his genius, you know, came up with a couple of acquisitions that were very sharp. Then he, um, you know, did a deal with Amazon Web Services, just a deal to move some of their workloads over to uh, Amazon. And boy, what it did to the stock from that point onwards, the stock hasn't looked back and that's been about five years. So, I mean, this guy knows what he's doing when it comes to strategic partnerships as well as, you know, relevant acquisitions. Did Bob Swan steer the company pretty well until now? I, it doesn't look like, see, I mean, Intel's been, Intel's been really poorly over the last few years. I mean, if you were to take away the push this year or the stock price improvement in the past few days, it's, it's not performed well. And, you know, evaluation-wise also, it's, 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 it's fairly poor. And it seems AMD is, uh, you know, gaining share from them. So, you know, it, it, they really need to do something, um, you know, quickly and, and, and I would say more aggressively to turn the things around. So, Dave, this is a big win for Dan Loeb and for, you know, activist investors, perhaps in general. What are we seeing in the world of activism um, in the marketplace here, you know, given what's happened, the uncertainty in the markets? Well, it, it's kind of been a constant over the last few years for, for activists to step in and push for change. And, and it'll be interesting to see how much Dan Loeb actually wins, because, you know, when he came out last month with this letter to Intel's chairman, he said that his hedge fund, Third Point, had a significant stake. We don't know how big the stake is yet, and we may not know until mid-February when uh, you know, institutional investors have to report on their holdings as of the end of December. So you know, that will be sort of another piece of the puzzle. How does uh, Loeb and, and his uh, you know, shareholders, in essence, benefit uh, from what's happening at Intel? And you know, will they be making moves with the shares now that they're running up today? And it's interesting how he phrased it in his tweet. He said Swan is a class act and did the right thing for all stakeholders, stepping aside for Gelsinger, almost taking a little bit of credit, but it's not quite clear what was happening behind the scenes. That will take a lot of... Investigation, really. Swan named CEO back in January of 2019. He had served as interim CEO for about six months before that. But certainly, as you've both said, Intel shares are up more than 9% today. VMware down about 5%. Well, one of the many things on President-elect Biden's to-do list is likely the challenge of repairing the relationship between the U.S. and many of its allies around the world to get a sense of how that might be achieved. We welcome Bill Rhodes, president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former chairman at Citibank. And Bill is also the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here. And again, the to-do list for President-elect Biden must be uh, you know, quite long. I'm wondering, as it relates to China in particular, how do you think President-elect Biden and his administration should approach China, given what we've experienced over the last four years? Great to be on with you, Paul and Vani. I think he puts a real priority on uh, working uh, with the Chinese, but in a very realistic way. He's talking about appointing a czar for Asia. Uh, and I think he recognizes that there's no quick fix to our trade situation and to some of the other problems, Taiwan, uh, the, uh, the problems of uh, Chinese penetration in, in uh, 
South China Sea, etc. I could run on through them. Uh, and of course, the deficit in trade is is a big problem. Uh, I think that he's going to move very cautiously. I don't think he's move, going to move rapidly to take off the $370 billion of tariffs we put on the Chinese. Uh, but I think he's willing to dialogue with them on things like climate change and perhaps some other uh, issues. But uh, he's going to move very cautiously on, on China. Bill, I have to ask you about your reaction to events last week. Of course, you would have been around, you know, during so many previous administrations, going right back as far as Nixon Ford, even through the Vietnam War. What did you make of what you saw in Capitol Hill last week? Well, first of all, I've been inundated with calls from around the world asking me that same question, Vani, because people are really horrified with what happened there, because although uh, we've had our problems over the last few years. Uh, the great democracies in Europe and elsewhere, uh, places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, always look to us as a beacon of democracy uh, in their in their way of doing business. And uh, they couldn't believe what happened uh, and on Capitol Hill. Now, I've been through, as you point out, Vietnam, uh, Watergate, and the United States uh, had a real problem uh, internally with its relationships and also how the view, uh, the view of the world was towards us. But we managed to work our way out because we always do. I think we will again here, but uh, it'll not be easy or quick. But I think that uh, Joe Biden will want to play the role that uh, Jerry Ford did in trying to bring the country back together again. I think this whole process we're going through now of impeachment will probably go right through the Senate, because my own feeling, I haven't spoken to him, but I think Mitch McConnell uh, will not oppose it. He will go along with it, because he's very concerned about the future of the Republican Party uh, and what's happened with uh, Trump hijacking it. So we are in for a difficult period of time, but I think Biden, with his relationships with the Republicans, including Mitch McConnell and others, uh, I think is probably the right person to be in the job at this time to heal us, just as Jerry Ford was at the time of Watergate in Vietnam. So, Bill, there are a lot of, uh, obviously, issues here domestically in terms of wounds that need to be healed. That They became, obviously, those wounds became just most apparent last week. But there's also issues with our global allies. I mean, presumably, President-elect Biden will... Tr- you know, attempt to re-engage with some of our core allies in Europe, in Asia. To what extent do you think they're going to welcome us back with open arms, given the last four years? Well, Europe has its own problems. You've seen Brexit, and there are differences right within the EU and the Eurozone. So I think they will welcome us in the sense of wanting to cooperate, but the agenda has changed somewhat. Uh, So I think what you have with uh, with Biden is he has as his secretary, when well, he's not been approved yet, but his uh, candidate for secretary of state, Tony Blinken, is very pro-European and believes in the Atlantic Alliance and actually was educated part of his life uh, in uh, Europe. And he always demonstrated in his, fir- you know, his previous roles in the State Department and as an assistant to, uh, to uh, then Vice President Biden his interest in uh, in doing that. And I think uh, Biden also believes very much in the Atlantic Alliance. But the world has shifted and uh, towards Asia, 
And I think we need to watch what the policies are going to be towards Asia, particularly on trade. Uh, I would like to see them resurrect the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, Trump left the first day in office, uh, decided to, to reject it, and the other nations uh, in Asia went ahead with it on their own, Japan, Australia, others. Uh, I don't think that'll happen anytime soon, but I think that's the type of spirit I think you're going to see out of this new administration. You know, they're going to go back to, to push uh, the efforts on climate change, green finance. Uh, they're going to want to strengthen the Atlantic Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be very pro-NATO, and they will want to re-engage our allies in Asia much more so than the Trump administration. Bill Rhodes, you are sticking around. We have lots more to talk about, and we want to get into more detail regarding what you just said about Asia. That's Bill Rhodes, banker to the world and author, by the way, of a book of the same name. And uh, really, no matter what country you're in in the world, you'll be able to get a local language translation of that book by Bill Rhodes. Just to keep you updated, there is some procedural votes going on in the House now before the debate on impeachment. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.